Katie. I'm excited to dive in with y'all to uh, some of this throne room imagery of who Jesus is and who he will be. Uh, my name is Cody. I'm on staff here, and I realized how old I was after uh, last service because all I could do is talk with people about the rain outside, like about the weather, and that's what old people do. Um, and if you're in this room and you're excited to get home and check your rain gauge, that means you're really old. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, there we go. It is exciting. It's raining. We need it. Okay. Um, last week, Beth, she was here and she was talking about fear and how fear can so easily hijack our brains and take over our bodies. And when fear takes over, we can be silly and we can be stupid in how we respond to things, right? It, it, it takes our, our decision-making, executive functioning, it just, um, it, it makes us freeze. And It's so easy to live a life consumed by fear. Fear is a narrative that flows through the news and through social media, and it's something that we focus on, and it's a focal point of our lives. And it can just be so easy uh, for fear to be a constant drip of our lives. And when we live a life, when we live a story that's informed by the narrative of fear, uh, we we end up doing things like making decisions too quick without thinking them through, we end up, uh, we might feel tempted to make other people feel small in order that we might feel bigger or better about ourselves. We might be tempted to hoard instead of being generous. We might be tempted to burn bridges with other people. Even people we care about, fear takes over and it can, it, it can make us treat people in terrible ways. We can be tempted to isolate. Fear can hijack a life of joy and turn it into a life of worry and anxiety. At the end of the day, fear can even make us selfish. And I don't mean selfish with like ill intent. It's just if your brain is, is sending um, messages that you need to survive right now, you really have no choice but to focus on yourself. And we obviously, we wanna be a people who get outside of ourselves and who focus on a bigger story. And just a small example of how fear um, has hijacked a moment in my life. When I was a little kid, uh, my dad and my sister and I, we would go to the Swinging Bridge, which is in uh, Bluffton, this small town where I'm from up in Northwest Ohio. And we would go walk at the Swinging Bridge. We'd walk our dog. And my dad would play this game with us. We're like halfway through uh, the trail at the Swinging Bridge. He would act like he was lost and he would make me and my little sister decide, well, I think we go right or left or straight to get back to the truck. And this should have been a blast. My dad was being patient with us. He was letting us. But but the problem is I'm terrible with directions. Even to this day as a full-grown functioning adult, I can be on a road trip and get off the highway to get gas, then forget which way to get back on the highway. And like I was made to live in a time where we have GPS. I need it. I love it. I have a backup GPS in my trunk just in case my phone ever gives out. Like, I I have to be prepared in that way. So in this moment, as a little kid, this should have been a blast, but I let fear, I let anxiety, I let worry take over in that moment. And here's what I forgot, is that my dad was with me that he cared for me, that he loved me, and he was in control. He could, have t- he could take over at any time. We were in no danger, but I let fear take over in that moment. And, and the problem we all face, the problem we have to wrestle with, is we can be so fear-focused that we forget our bigger story, and we forget the narrative that we're living with our lives. We can forget where we're headed and what that means for how we should live our lives right now. We can forget that God's in control and that, that he has hope promised for us. So what would it look like? What, are, what would our lives look like if we tapped into this story that he's weaving, this, this constant drip of hope instead of fear? 
And as we read God's story, Genesis through Revelation, the ending can seem pretty scary, right? Like Revelation, if you think about the end of the world as you know it, you might have um, thoughts of scarcity and famine and starvation and all, all of these things, or you might have thoughts of like joy and courage and boldness and community, and both of those are valid. We see images of both of those in the book of Revelation, and so we're in this Maranatha sermon series studying Revelation, and Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and like our modern day definition of apocalypse, it's no wonder we see it as scary because Oxford Dictionary, here are two definitions of apocalypse. First off, complete and final destruction of the world as described in the biblical book of Revelation or an event involving destruction or damage on an awesome or catastrophic scale. So this sounds fear invoking, right? Like this is not shocking um, that, that we see it as a fear narrative. Um, and I'm not trying to bait and switch and say that Revelation is a walk in the park. It's not. It's not all rainbows and butterflies. There are things that are scary, even for the believer, even for those who are on the right side of the kingdom of God. Like there's scary stuff on the horizon. There's oppression and suffering and persecution and famine and struggle and conflict. And if our brains really do identify threats and light up, there's going to be a lot of that. Um, there's, there's war and there's the, the cups of wrath that God is going to pour out on his enemies. And there's this tribulation period and there's all sorts of weird imagery in the book of Revelation. I don't know if it's literal. I don't know if it's going to be metaphorical, but in our Bible reading plan today, it was all about this beast and these, um, th this dragon. And, and there's other imagery of this demon locust thing that has the face of men and a stinger, and it's really weird. And, and it says that a fourth of the world's population is going to die, both humans and animals. And there's going to be so much bloodshed that the blood will pool up to the height of a horse's bridle, which is pretty high. So a lot of fear invoking fear narrative in this book, but there's also an undercurrent in this book that we've been trying to highlight in this sermon series. And maybe the first time you went to the beach, maybe it was as a little kid, maybe not, but the first time you went to the beach where there was an undercurrent, hopefully somebody told you about it, right? Because if you don't know about an undercurrent, you'll be tempted to focus on the waves ahead of you and they're big and they're scary or they're fun to play in. But the undercurrent, it can really take people places they never planned on going. And likewise, in our own lives, we can so easily focus on fear, on what's right in front of us. And we can forget that we have an undercurrent of hope to tap into. Just like Finding Nemo in the gang tapped into the EAC in Finding Nemo, right? That was a last minute ad. I felt like I had to throw it in there somehow. Um, but we wanna tap into hope, right? We wanna tap into the undercurrent of hope. And uh, the book of Revelation, really like the gist of it is no matter how dark things get, no matter how bad things are looking, God is still working to move us towards his redemptive kingdom. And so ever since the beginning of the world, um, ever since Genesis, when, the, when sin entered the world, there's been an undercurrent of hope. And this hope has been building. And Revelation is supposed to be like a stick of dynamite that's been lit. And this hope, it's about to explode. Like that's how we're supposed to read this book as believers. And so today we're diving in, starting in chapter 17, 
high-level overview, chapter 17 and 18, uh, the author John, he's writing about the evils of the world by talking about a city called Babylon. Now, Babylon, um, it's talked about a lot in the Old and New Testament, more than any other city besides Jerusalem, and it often depicts the evils of this world. And in chapter 17 and 18, uh, here's what what one theologian and commentator said. He said, chapter 17 and 18, Babylon symbolizes the Antichrist city or system. So the Antichrist is the embodiment of evil, the opposite of Jesus. And this city is going to be characterized by rampant materialism, a love of money, outrageous idolatry, religious sacrilege, and violence against Christians. And there's been a lot of speculation over the centuries about who Babylon is and where Babylon is and what it symbolizes and represents. Many theorized that Rome was a modern-day Babylon. It was this big, bad, powerful, domineering city, and Rome fell quickly. And others theorized that America is Babylon, right? That, That we're this, we have rampant idolatry and materialism and wealth and comfort and all of these things that kind of line up with this stuff. And, and, and who knows, uh, it's not really, we're not trying to break the codes of Revelation, but this is just what people see it as. It, regardless, this city is highlighted as a city of darkness. But then the later part of chapter 18 and into chapter 19, um, there's this shift that starts to take place where this upside down kingdom reality is brought before us. And there's this undercurrent of hope because this big, bad city of Babylon that's domineering everything, filled with evil. Um, in, chap- in the later part of chapter 18, this city is brought to uh, ruin in one hour. Like in one hour, the city of Babylon is brought to ruin. And then in chapter 19, it paints a picture for us that God is in control and he's coming back to usher in hope and he'll dominate anything that's not of his kingdom and he'll usher in light. And so the old city is being ushered out and there's this new city that God is going to be ushering in. And then we see this imagery take place in chapter 19 that throws back to our union sermon series. We just got done in the union sermon series, which was all about how Jesus is the husband, he's the groom, and he's coming back to get the church, the bride, to bring us to his kingdom. And so read with me, starting in verse 7 of chapter 19. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And so we see depicted here, basically the greatest story ever written. Like every, every fairy tale, every good book, out there basically follow this, follows this archetype, that there's a good guy who overcomes evil and he rescues the woman and he brings her home and they live happily ever after. All of that is written uh, basically in our hearts, our longing for this moment. We have eternity written on our hearts. And so this is what we're all longing for, is to be dwelling in God's kingdom face to face with him. And y'all, I can't like imagine how good this wedding feast is going to be. Everybody loves a good wedding, right? This is going to be a blast, and I can't imagine how good food is going to taste in the new heaven and the new earth, and I can't imagine how good wine is going to taste in the new— I don't even like wine, but in heaven I'm going to love it, and there's going to be no wine hangover. Like, it's going to be awesome. I can't—and then verse 8 in here, it says— 
with fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. It's given to us, the church. And this shows the faithfulness of Christ, that through his death on the cross, he gives us righteousness. Although our sin has tarnished us, he, he gives us white linen, bright and clean, so he has transformed us, and as a result of that, we worship. And then we get to verse 11, and we see a description of what Jesus is going to look like when he comes back to get us. And so it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is faithful and true, with justice he judges and wages war. Now, back in Revelation chapter 6, there was a different rider on a white horse, and that was the Antichrist. He came to usher in uh, war. And, and the devil or the enemy, he will always try to mimic God. He always tries to, he's this shadow figure of imperfection of, of the perfect Christ. And so the devil, he's the father of lies. He's the great deceiver. Uh, but Jesus, he, his name is faithful and true. And it's with justice that he judges and wages war. In the verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He had a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And then verse 15, there's a lot of good stuff to break down in here. It says, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now, the inner third grader in me would love if he actually came back with a sword coming out, like that would be incredible. I'd be mind blown. I don't, again, is this literal? Is this metaphorical? It's likely this is pointing back to Ephesians chapter 6, six and Hebrews chapter 4, where it talks about how the word of God is a double-edged sword. And so the, the picture here is that Jesus, he's going to come back and decimate his enemies simply by speaking, right? Like the, the biggest war of all time is going to happen, and it's going to be really anticlimactic because Jesus is going to speak and his enemies are going to fall, right? Um, so out of his mouth, he speaks and he rules. And then it says, he will rule with an iron scepter. And so this throws back to Psalm 45, verse six. It says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. And so that like metal, bedazzled, jeweled things that kings hold, his will be built on the foundation of justice and, and, and signaling that his kingdom is an eternal reign. And then it says, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. So this points back to Isaiah chapter 63, verse 2 and 3. It talks about the coming of God and he'll, he'll um, tread over his enemies and it uses this winepress imagery. And back in this time period, certain wine presses, you'd put the grapes in the wine press, you'd wash your feet and your legs and you would start stomping on the grapes and that would bring forth grape juice and you'd ferment that, it would turn into wine, you'd get grape juice all over your legs and all over your robe. And and it's saying that God is going to come back and he's going to stomp on his enemies. And it's beautiful because this throws back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. When Satan deceived humanity and sin entered the world, God spoke to Satan and told him his future. He said, when the Messiah comes, this is Genesis uh, 13, or 3 verse 15b, it says, he, Messiah, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so although Jesus' heel has been struck, he had this temporary wounding, he's going to stomp on the enemy's head. 
Um, And and then real quick before we move on, it talks about the fury and the wrath of God. Uh, This is a red flag for some people. Is God a God of wrath? Is he a God of fury? Yes, he is, and here's why. Is you cannot separate love from wrath. If you truly love something or someone, you will be willing to bring wrath upon anything that threatens that which you love. Right? And so since we're God's love object, since he loves us, since he cares about us, he wants to bring wrath upon sin, which separates us from him. And so parents in the room, you'd bring wrath upon anyone that tries to harm your kids in a bodily way. It's this, you, you can't separate those things. Love and wrath go together. Then verse 16 It says, on his robe and on his thigh, he had a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus comes back with a thigh tattoo, proclaiming who he is, (laughs) King of Kings, Lord of Lords. All right, so this this version of Jesus, his his dominating and in might, it's kind of one angle of how we see Jesus. How Jesus came the first time, maybe that's a different angle of how we're used to seeing him. And it's important that we see kind of a holistic picture of who Jesus is. And so on the screen behind me, you'll see kind of the breakdown of who he was the first time, how he's coming back the second time. So Jesus, he came, and he came born in humble clothing, wrapped in swaddling cloth, put in a manger. But he's coming back the second time wearing clothes that pronounce his title and power and might. He came the first time as the weeping prophet who wept over Jerusalem. He's coming back again with eyes ablaze of fire. The first time he came and he wore a crown of thorns. The second time he'll be wearing many royal crowns. The first time Jesus came, his blood covers his enemies. The second time around, his enemy's blood will be on him. And I've I've fallen into the trap, uh, this guilty trap, of thinking that this first coming of Jesus was weak. And, And just to be clear, just reminding myself and all of us, in no way was Jesus weak the first time he came. He allowed himself to be arrested and spit on and mocked and punched and beat and put on a cross. All of that was power under control. He could have decimated us in a moment. He had all of this strength under control. And the second time Jesus comes back, he'll be revealing his power in a new way that brings about glory to him and to his father. And so may we, may we, as we journey through life, as we seek hope, may we see both who he was and who he's going to be. And I'm going to have, in a moment, I'm going to have a quote on the screen behind me from Nikki Cruz. Nikki was a convert of David Wilkerson. If you've never listened to or heard the book, The Cross and the Switchblade, are you guys at least familiar with this story? Any show of hands? Phenomenal story. Listen to it, read it, do whatever you got to do. So this, this guy, he's a small town preacher in a coal mining community in Pennsylvania, and he felt called by God to go to inner city New York in the 1950s when gang violence was horrific and rampant, and he felt called to go preach the gospel there. And he had this incredible revival ministry. One of his converts was Nicky Cruz, who was a warlord of one of these street gangs. And, and he went on to have his own ministry, but here's what he said when he met Jesus for the first time. And the picture behind me, you can't really tell. This is a picture of him trading out um, a baseball bat, which was his weapon of choice for a Bible. Here's what he says. I remember when I saw the real Jesus for the first time. Suddenly I saw you as you really were. I saw that you were human, just like me. I saw that you had courage, you had guts, you had something I couldn't describe, something I've never seen before something incredibly strong and tender all at the same time. I saw that you had the power to squash me like a bug. And instead you poured out your blood to save me, to love me. 
and to heal my aching heart. And I love that Jesus, he's good news for the kids in the inner city, for people born in the middle of nowhere, for the uneducated and the educated, for the poor and for the wealthy. He's good news to all of us. And so may we see Jesus in in this balanced way of who he was and who he will be because it informs our future. And and I'm I'm gonna put some pictures on the screen behind me in a moment of this is human's attempt at trying to depict what God might look like, what Jesus might look like when he comes back for the second time. And of course, we're gonna blow it, we're gonna get it wrong. This is just our feeble attempts at depicting what he might look like through some quick Google searches. But I wonder, are, are there, is there anyone in the room who you're in a season where you need hope and you need to cling to this second coming of Jesus and his power and his might? You can show those pictures. Um, it, um, yeah, you can show those pictures. And uh, as I was praying, as I was um, preparing for this message, um, I was praying and I got this image in my head and I don't get images in my head often. Um, and the image was this, is some of you are going through a hard, hard season of life and uh, you're drowning in the middle of the ocean and the waves are crashing all over you and you're holding on to a rope. And we've talked here at North Star before about how hope is a rope, and you're clinging to this rope, but some of us have forgotten what that rope is attached to, that it's attached to this strong, mighty, sovereign God who's in control of all things and will one day come back, and he will usher in peace, and he will usher in justice. And so may we cling to to this, that he's the anchor of our hope. He's the anchor of our salvation, And when we do that, it'll allow us to have positive endurance as we go through life. And Romans 8.18 says this. It says, I consider that our present sufferings now are worth nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And so all the hardship that you've ever been through, all the weightiness of betrayal and, and relational dynamic and whatever you've experienced in this life that brings about hardship, that's weighty. But, but, but the weight that we're going to, the weight of glory, of getting to see God face to face, the weight of our experiences here and now are going to pale in comparison. And that's what we long to, and that is what we cling to. If, if we keep our eye on this prize, running with our endurance, knowing that God's going to work all things out in the end, um, and, and we cling to this story, remembering that he's in control, then optimism in our life can start to overshadow pessimism. And I've got a buddy of mine, um, I, I've got a buddy, and I, I talk on the phone with him often, and um, he drives a lot for his job, and as he drives, he would listen to talk show radio, and this happened to be political talk show radio. And it doesn't matter if it was right-winged or left-winged, most of it is fear-mongering garbage because they, they, they highlight fear and it induces anger in our lives. And so he would listen to this and he, he had a spirit of anger, uh, not shocking. And one day we were on the phone and he said, you know what? I think I'm gonna start reading the book of Revelation. And honestly, when he said that, I got a little nervous because this book can be interpreted so many different ways that like if you interpret this book wrong, you might find yourself in the bunker in, the, in a bunker in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, like hunkered down ready for the end. And so I was just a little nervous when he started reading that, it, me of little faith. Um, a few weeks later, I talked to him on the phone and there was this 180 taking place in his life. He's like, Cody, I'm done listening to this radio. I'm done caring about politics. I've read the ending. Like I see where we're headed and, and that no man can change that. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm diving in 
to what Jesus says, and I'm diving into his promises, and it was phenomenal. And to this day, I think I know more of what's going on in this world politically than he does, which is saying something, because I don't know much. Uh, not that you're wrong if you're informed or take part in politics, but, but for him, this, this was a huge part of stepping into hope of who Christ is. And so a question that, that I'd love for you to ask yourself, a question I need to ask myself, is would people look at my life and say that I'm a person of hope? Of course, if I go through a hard season, if something happens, I can grieve. I can be real about those things, but do I have a foundation in my life, unshakable, that's built on hope? That's the kind of people we want to be. And it was awesome uh, last weekend getting to watch the outdoor baptisms take place uh, because before they took place, we sat in a living room and people just testified of who they used to be, how they were broken, how they were messed up, uh, dirty, rotten sinners, one of them called themselves. And, uh, and, and now they have Christ as their king and they identify with his saving grace and power. And when they're dunked under the water, it symbolized that they're dead to all of their own ways. And when they're brought out of the water, it symbolized that they will one day too to share in the resurrection and the victory of Jesus. And it was phenomenal to see in this kind of hope, it begets hope, it, it multiplies, right? Like this kind of hope builds on itself and th th this is who we want to be. If we can stand in this hope, th then all of a sudden in our daily life, we're gonna be able to take risks because we're not citizens of this world and, and our hope is in what's to come and, and we'll, we'll be able to engage with people that are different than us. And we're not gonna be as worried about getting the hell out of earth. Instead, we'll be concerned about bringing heaven down to earth right here and now, right? And so this is, these are the kind of people we want to be, that we stand on God's promises and we love and we serve and we give generously in our lives. I wanna invite the band out. Um, to end our time, I wanna read with you a few verses from Revelation chapter 21. And I think every funeral I've officiated, um, I've read these verses, not because I'm trying to short circuit the grieving process. Um, I don't wanna do that. If you're at a funeral and you've lost someone important to you, you should grieve, that's good and right. But the reason I read these verses is I just wanna keep hope in front of them. I just wanna keep reminding them of the end game. Although we're here, we're in the now but not yet, here's where we're headed. And so as I read these verses, feel free to relax, close your eyes if you want, or take deep breaths. Just I wanna read to you where we're headed. And this brings so much hope, friends. So. Feel free to relax, here's what it says. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So one day, not too long from now, because our lives are short, it's a breath here today and gone tomorrow. Not long from now, we'll find ourselves face to face with God, eyes ablaze, all power, all might, all glory, being worshiped by millions of angels, we'll find ourselves before him. And we won't have to have faith, we won't have to wonder if we're loved, if we're cherished, if we're, we won't have to wonder any of that because we'll be in his presence, dwelling with him 
and he's bringing heaven back down to earth to be among us. That's the hope we stand on. And I'm gonna butcher her name, Teresa of Avali, or however you say her name, she said this. She said, from heaven, even the most miserable life will look like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. And so even people around the world that have experienced so much more suffering that I've experienced, just a terrible earth's existence, even their life's experience will be like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. And we cling to this truth that we'll get to spend eternity and glory with him. And that's what we put our hope in because Jesus has resurrected and he's made us right with God. And so we wanna celebrate that And we're going to do that in a few ways. Here at North Star, we take communion every single Sunday. And anyone who's a believer in Christ is welcome to come participate. And the cracker represents Jesus' body that was broken for us on the cross. And when we dip it in the juice, it symbolizes his blood that was poured out on our behalf. We take it to remember what he has done and what he's coming back to do. We're also gonna have prayer teams up front and here. And we wanna we want we pray with the authority of Christ. Christ right now is in heaven being worshiped by millions of angels and it says that he's our advocate, advocating on our behalf before the Father. And so with that authority, we want to pray over what's ever going on in your life. If you need hope, we want to pray for it. We're also gonna worship, we're gonna sing a song that talks about how Jesus is our king. He's the king of our hearts. And and please say in worship, my talk was short today. There's plenty of time to worship. Let this song wash over you and let's sing about God's goodness, that he's he's the king who's both powerful and he's good. And, And because of that dynamic, we worship. And so would you stand and pray with me? God, you are good and you want good things for us and you are powerful. You have control and authority and power over our lives and we cling to the hope that you promise of our future. You promise good things for us. And Jesus, we want to be people of hope who are the aroma of Christ that get to tell others about your hope. Help us to not just hear these words uh, and, and do nothing with it, but help us to leave these church walls and to be a people of hope who stand on your hope. It's in your name we pray, amen.